are you? Boy, howdy. I am, how am I? Uh, let me, I better click record or nothing good's going to happen. Uh, how am I? I am, I, I appreciate the question and I'm going to try to answer it honestly. I'm trying to see silver linings and I see some uh, right now. What I'm seeing is stress in lots of ways, stress impacting communities in ways that don't seem directly related to the coronavirus, don't seem directly related to Black Lives Matter, but I'm seeing stress. I'm seeing leaders of organizations who are having a tough time. I'm seeing organizations having a tough time. I'm seeing stress. How are you? <laughs> I appreciate your honesty. I'm, uh, I'm feeling that from a lot of people I talk to. People that are, tend to be really optimistic and calm are, are not those two things right now. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it's important to just receive that honesty. And, um, and when you're running for office, as you know, you've been here, you really feel the pulse of what's going on in the city. And I think for me, just from the people that I know that are usually optimistic and kind of cheerleaderly, even they're, um, they're subdued and they're, they're actually depressed too. So it's, uh, it's concerning. Yeah. As you're out talking to folks, any, um, any way that depression is manifesting itself that is most salient to you, that is either actionable or most worrisome? I think it actually, what's affirming is when I first decided to jump into the race, I heard some of this. I heard what happened to a city that even though we didn't always agree with each other, we knew how to have dialogue. We knew how to come together and, you know, crunch it all out and figure out what's the best, um, you know, synthesis of that and consensus to move forward. You know, I think people kind of gave up on <laughs> that happening in Washington, D.C. and sometimes even in Salem, right? Um, but they felt like they could do that in local politics. And so I was surprised how people that don't agree with each other are all saying that. What's a policy area or what's an area of concern that is deeply important that is getting missed, that you're not getting asked enough about in your Willamette Week and your Oregonian and your KTU interviews? Everybody will ask about police reform, and we need to also. Everybody's going to ask about the coronavirus. Everybody's going to ask about economic impact of that. What's getting missed? Um, I actually think that the homelessness and housing conversation uh, is getting missed at this moment, which is completely connected, of course, to the economic devastation. And I actually think the economic devastation's not being discussed with the depths of honesty that's necessary right now. You talked about the economic impact, that it's that because this, and I'll, these are my words, not yours, but you talked about the economic impact and that, and you said, you told the Oregonian that we've got to be aware that what's coming, the economic depression that's coming is going to make uh, the great recession look like nothing, I believe was your word. And I recognize that the artificially inflated stock market, the uh, stimulus that's been pushed into the American economy by the federal government and some state and local governments, that that's propping that's propping up, propping up property values, that's helping people pay their rent. Uh, it doesn't necessarily answer the question of what's going to be happening six months from now. Say more about the economic impact you foresee. 
Yeah, I think uh, it's a couple combinations. One is I have a lot of friends that are small business owners, and especially in the hospitality industry, if you will, and creative side of industries, whether it's music venues, restaurants, small retail shops. And basically their spigot, their revenue, um, really stopped flowing around mid-March. And for the most part, most of them haven't been able to turn it back on. And they're getting some loans, but you know, loans have to be paid back. And they're, they're really starting to suffer and worry. They don't know if they're going to be able to turn the key back on when, they're, when we're on the other side. They don't know um, if it's going to be worth turning it back on. They, um, there's a lot of talk amongst people that have loved this city for decades that don't know if they want to sign leases again to do business here. And I think people forget that a lot of our revenue streams come from that sector. And it's the taxes we collect on them and the property taxes from them as well that really fuel the services that we all need. And I think there's that disconnect between the private and the public sector has just widened. And the public sector experiences that revenue shortage later. It's lagging behind the private side. And so I just think that it's time for the city to get really honest about the fact that we're not going to be a $5.6 billion organization. And it's going to come down. The currency is down everywhere. So what is that number? And how can we repurpose the city and the county both so we can survive this? What should the mayor be doing? What should the city council be doing to ready for that? And at the risk of a compound question, what are the first two cuts you'd make to get us from 5.6 to 4.5 or whatever the number would be? Well, the way I do uh, budgeting, uh, Jefferson, is I start with what are the key priorities? And so I'd answer the question first by getting all five of us on the same page of what our top three to four priorities are. And for me, it would really be basic about making sure we have food and shelter uh, to survive this. And then we'd have to look at where do we have bureaus that bump up against each other, where there's VIM diagram, where they overlap, and start to see that those connecting parts. And within that, we can then not do these 5% for all bureaus, cut the money, cut their budgets more, okay, this bureau really can be swallowed into this bureau. And I haven't done all the details on that. I just know that if we actually started with a strategy first of what the priorities are, and then you build a budget based on that, as opposed to having the line items, uh, you know, that's like the tail wagging the dog. How much deficit spending, how much borrowing should we anticipate doing? One thing that's true about government that's different from business, even different from some nonprofit organizations, is that demand for most businesses goes down during an economic downturn. Demand for government services goes up during an economic downturn. How do you manage that? Well, which is why you want to have um, to make sure you have some uh, endowed accounts so that you can survive these, uh, you know, the rainy day accounts. Like when you were in Salem, you were smart to build those rainy day accounts. Therefore, times like this. I think that local governments are more strained than federal government. Federal government gets by with deficit spending, right? But we don't have that same um, luxury, if you will, in state and local governments. So I really think it's going to be about how we prioritize. One of the things you said, well, let me ask this. Loretta Smith, who's running for the same seat as you, I guess you're running against each other. I never loved the name, never loved the phrase against. Advocated for a much deeper cut to the police bureau than Joanne Hardesty did, who's supporting your campaign. Who was right? What was 
what I appreciated and respect about Joanne Hardesty's repurposing of 15 million is that she actually had a plan with that 15 million. So the 15 million went towards building what we have to build, which is a community uh, safety system. So bringing in, for example, the street response team and where they have some capacity, but deepening their capabilities and their capacity to stretch throughout the city where they have employees that are trained in what the police say they're not trained in, which is being um, trauma-informed and knowing how to de-escalate and being more like social workers on the front line. She had a plan with that 15 million. I'm not saying I couldn't get to 50 million repurposing, but it, to me, it has to be about building a community safety system, a guardianship, if you will. And that's what, that's what I just wanted to have. I wanted to know what the plan is. Just cutting 50 million with no plan seemed like a reaction. And I tend to not be a reactionary leader. I tend to be very measured and deliberate. If we're going to be facing major cuts in the city, and right now the wind is at the back of anybody who wants to transform public safety, isn't now the time to be a bit bolder with transformation, including setting a ta- budgetary target that might be bolder than $15 million and saying what we need to do? Or if not, what planning is necessary? Well, it's a good question. Again, it's the five of us working as a team, uh, knowing that community safety is going to be obviously one of the priorities, especially if you look at it and how it's about a part of emergency services as well. And so I just, I think that your question is a good one and that, yeah, it could be more than 50 million, but we have to take a breath and just look at the bigger picture and see how it's all connected. I think doing line item cuts without connecting the dots on what our priorities are is reactionary uh, leadership. Should we reimagine the fire bureau right now? Much of the attention, of course, is on the police bureau. The fire bureau also is largely a healthcare delivery system. At 3% of its calls are house fires. It is still built. It's trained to deal with healthcare systems, thankfully, uh, but still so much of it is built around being able to put out fires. Should that be reimagined as well? I think you're onto something that we have to, like, I think we have police, we obviously have fire, we have the emergency uh, bureau. How are those all connected? And where can we see um, the synergy, if you will, the overlap? And in that, where can we find some efficiencies? So when we build that community safety system, that would be a really good start, is to, is to, is to look at all of the bureaus that have that public-facing community safety um, system. I mean, the Parks Department, for that matter, is a part of that. Um, they're on the front lines. They're providing a wonderful service, uh, especially right now with COVID. It's one of the few places my friends who live in dense population, populated apartment buildings can go get some fresh air. Um, I like to think right now, too, Jefferson, that we, we need to be looking at the big ones going to come someday. And I think we've always laughed, but also been disappointed that Portland doesn't react very well to two inches of snow. And then um, we clearly have found that we're pretty, that we struggled with the first response to COVID. What's going to happen when we have a tsunami and, you know, the eight point uh, whatever earthquake? So I think that we should also use this scenario planning to really prepare for that big one as well. With respect to the protests that are happening in the street right now, or generally with respect to addressing Black Lives Matter and addressing public safety reform, what has the mayor done right? I think his response in the past week was different than earlier. Um, and I think he's been very, well, one, he went down there and he uh, you know, showed some great uh, leadership and humility just by 
facing the protesters and, and having a conversation. He also has been very strong and on message about how unhelpful it is to have um, the current president's re-election campaign use us as a stage and a prop. Um, and I appreciate that. So that, that I'll give him kudos on that. And uh, yeah, that's been his number one strength of late. What's he done wrong? Impl- implied in there is maybe he should have gone down earlier, but beyond that, perhaps, what are the most important things he's done wrong or failed to do? You know, I, I really am careful to um, criticize what I don't know. <laughs> and I'm going to be working with the mayor, um, you know, right after August 11th. That's fair. Let me re- rephrase the question. If you were advising the mayor, yeah. what would you have advised him to do early on when we were facing and, and I think he got high marks uh, by lots of people for his early response to the coronavirus, right? And that now seems like so long ago, but it was only, you know, five months ago. And and not as high marks, I think, if you just sort of listen to social media chatter over the last five weeks. If you were advising him five weeks ago or advising him today, what would you be suggesting? Yeah, I think he uh, was slow on really going hard on the police in terms of their militant use of um you know, tear gas, we, we, it's like you pass legislation, but it's about the implementation. And it, it allowed the police to make calls on what they determined was a riot. I think there should have been, um, if I was the mayor, I probably would have been down there monitoring when they were making that call. And as a commissioner, I would have been working with the police chief to push back if I thought, if I thought that there's no way this is a riot. In fact, you guys just instigated a riot by your reaction. As somebody that's been, you know, involved in protesting much of my uh, life off and on, I'm, I'm well aware of how escalated it is once the armor shows up. I'm, a, I'm definitely a lover, not a fighter and a peace guy. And I know that every time I've been in a protest where the armor comes out, it just gets my heart going and I get like aggressive on some level I can't even explain. And so I think that, that, that was where he was slow. I also think that as a mayor and as a leader, we have to take the risk. I, you know, I, I was a Jimmy Carter fan much of my um, uh, teen and 20, in my 20s because I liked how he leaned into the Middle East in spite of everyone saying it was impossible. He would bring these people to the table that no one thought would ever listen to one another. Now, clearly doing conflict negotiation work is very methodical and it takes a while, but why can't we dream? Why can't we imagine what it would be like if we had some epic like peace summits right now that were that were out of the city hall somewhere out in the community and that we had different fractions of the protesters we have police we have business owners and small business owners especially that are that are definitely affected by this and my friends who live downtown and quite frankly my friends who live on mlk and killingsworth that for a while were up late every night um, and having tear gas come into their homes and same with my neighborhood out here in North Portland where the police union headquarters are. A lot of people are now affected by, I would say the trauma after a certain hour. And Jefferson, we gotta come together. This is really devastating what's happening with uh, coronavirus meets our economic devastation. And we as a city have to have some peaceful communication. And I'm not saying those meetings are gonna be chill. I'm not saying that there won't be tons of tension. And I am actually comfortable with that. What I'm not comfortable with is no one's listening to each other, it appears. And that's troublesome. So what's the move to get that listening? If listening is the thing, 
What's the first, second, third move? How do you begin that sort of thing without just seeming like a sellout, without sort of seeming like, hey, protesters, calm down and sounding like you're just on the side of somebody who's complaining about some spray paint? That's a great, that's a fair question. I think that the, the truth is it's a courageous act to begin that type of dialogue. It's a courageous act to bring people to the same table that seemingly have no interest in agreeing with each other. But what I found in my experience when I've done that in other situations where there was a lot of conflict, I was the uh, facilitator of these discussions back in the AIDS pandemic in Seattle in 90, 1990. And you had um, the activists from ACT UP, and then you had the people from the health department. And man, there was a lot of friction then. There was some major protesting. And I had to bring them to the same room and, and just really have like some rules on how we would engage. And I got to tell you, after three meetings, it was a different scenario. And we started to figure out that we had some of the same goals in mind. Yeah, we had different ways of getting there. But I have found, call me an idealist, that you can do this if it's well-prepared, it's methodical, and you're very humble about what you're going to receive. You don't come in with a baked notion. You don't come in with a top-down drive. You come in with a willingness to do the dialogue and then find out what the common goals are. Daryl Turner, head of the police union, has criticized Joanne Hardesty, called her part of the problem. Is that fair? I think that Joanne Hardesty's uh, record uh, for decades of understanding why the community has trauma, is upset, has zero trust in the military-styled police operations in our city is well-respected. I can imagine if you're the head of the culture that doesn't want change and the culture that has that power, person like Commissioner Hardesty would be threatening to them. Uh, so I, I, I'm really proud of, of Joanne's work over the decades and she was the right person at the right time to be able to repurpose that 15 million. And I'm really um, very excited that she's endorsed my candidacy. Of all the things you've learned in the campaign trail, what is something with respect to trying to change that police culture? What is something you think is the most important and or what do you think is the thing that's hardest? And I don't mean a restatement of, well, changing culture is really hard. But how do you actually do that? Because, by the way, we've been talking about this as a city for more than the last five months, more than the last five years, more than the last three decades. In fact, we've had eight police chiefs since 2010. We've had one head of the police association. Every single liberal running for city council or mayor for the last 30 years has talked about trying to change the culture of the police association. What are the most important moves that need to happen? Well, clearly, because you just reminded me of the history, thank you, that was a great, really great summary. We also, during the last 30 years, have always passed the contract for the police association pretty quickly. So clearly, that must be hard to do. It must be hard to really negotiate with the police union and get into the weeds of that contract. It must be hard to take the policies from on high and ensure that they're actually implemented on the ground where we wouldn't have all the buyouts, if you will, that happen after police get by basically with murder, and then there's litigation, and then they have great attorneys in the police union, the next thing you know, that same person gets uh, by with murder and gets lots of money, uh, payout that we all pay for. So those are the things that are obviously hard. So we have to like identify what has been going on for the last 30 years, like you just spelled out, and not pretend that those headwinds aren't there, and that the, po the policy that Joanne is working on for the, that she has on the ballot 
I think is a really great big step in making sure that the negotiations with the police union actually have community participation that's codified uh, like never before. And so I think that as someone, you know, my experience on the Portland Public School Board is you, those are not easy um, contracts to, uh, to sign. There should be a lot of deliberation, a lot of dialogue. And I think sometimes in our one party rule state of Oregon, we sometimes uh, put all labor unions like are all good. And they're all, they're all, they, they are there for a reason. I'm a big uh, labor supporter. Most of my family are party unions and it's a culture. And to chip away at that culture, we have to have the willingness to think out of the box and not worry about our next election um, if we, you know, if we tick, if we tick someone off because we're, we're, we're advocating for the community as opposed to what the union wants. And you're talking about previously sort of a community review, independent review with teeth and with accountability. You're on the record supporting that. Uh, how, how hard is that going to be to pass? You think there are the votes on the council and you think there's going to be the campaign apparatus to pass it in what, a time frame of two and a half months? I think that it will uh, do really well um, with the voters. And I think that it's important to make sure that we have the critical mass. We have attitudes and beliefs and values that have been shifted like never before. It's always exciting, as you know, Jefferson, when you can witness the population shifting on an issue, you know, as a, as a gay man, as somebody that never thought the marriage would be legal, um, just to see that swiftly like change. That seemed to happen fast, didn't it? It's yeah. within, within a handful of years. Well, it took this uh, uprising, you know, this uprising is a beautiful thing when it comes to your average, let's just say your average white person now has uh, shifted their opinions on the fact that police um, treat people of color uh, much differently than they treat white people. A lot of us have known this for years, but many people haven't been active about it. So the fact that we have a mass population in the city of Portland, understanding that is a beautiful thing. So we gotta take that momentum and, and pass some policy that allow our practice to change. And I use the word practice for a reason, because practice eats policy for lunch. How many times down in Salem did you feel good about a policy you passed? And then if you would have looked into, into it four years later, you would discover that it never landed on the ground. How many times did that happen? So I, I don't know if I'd say never landed on the ground, but how many times would I be disappointed with how, how vision translated action? Uh, probably every time. Exactly. And, and some of that is because as leaders, elected leaders, we don't do a good enough job monitoring our progress with transparency. I think it's difficult in the two-year to four-year election cycles where we're trying to get 50.1 to actually do the hard work because we just need to come with a piffy little comments to win the race. And so what, what elected officials are being called to do on this one now more than ever is, is really bringing in the community and making sure this is a ground-up movement. And so it's going to make us behave differently. It means we're going to have to hold more messiness, if you will, and more tension. And it's not going to be fixed overnight but it's gonna be a long haul. And that's one reason I come from the independent community sector. I'm not from the political sector. I'm okay if uh, how many terms I run. It's about doing your job well. And this is going to be one where you're gonna to have to take some courageous risk um, to make sure that we keep moving forward. And my philosophy is always measure what you want, measure what success looks like, be transparent about it with the public, have a dashboard, publicize that, let everyone know how it's going. And guess what? Admit when it's not moving very well. 
and then and just say that because it happens all the time. But instead, what we do in Portland many times is we blow that up and we come up with another cute name and another proclamation. And then two to three years, once again, nothing really happened. And then we act like that never occurred. That's BS. I mean, it's like we got to really take this one seriously. And it's for the long term. I want to go back to the economy and that I do think that now the public conversation is so justifiably focused upon where it should be focused. And we can project ourselves to the conversation a year from now at a time when in the event that you win, you'll actually be in office grappling with stuff. And there will still be deep issues related to making sure that black lives matter in law and in practice, making sure that transformation of public safety is not only an idea, but it's moving into operation. And we will be dealing with huge budget challenges. You told the Oregonian that you were concerned about some major spending measures in November. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but why don't you share that concern? Yeah. Well, my one of my main points was that I think by November, the population in Portland is going to be experiencing, based on the projections, just with digging and reading articles in New York Times about the projections of people who will be uh, evicted, uh, how many people will be unemployed. If you just look at the metrics, it's a much larger part of the population than uh, we're, we're talking about right now. And so that reality is here. And I think that the voters going to have more discernment, uh, more pain. And we're generous voters. I mean, boy, are we? We we pass things when there's not even a plan, but we just are so generous. We like, you know, I I voted for the last measure in the spring for Metro, but I really would have liked to see what success looked like with that measure. I would have liked to see what the top three strategies were. I would have liked to see, again, the metrics on how we're going to know if that was successful or not. 250 million is a lot of money. I think we need to get, we need to have more accountability to the public when we put measures in front of them um, now more than ever. And it could be because I come from the revenue side of the nonprofit sector. I never would have been awarded a, a grant from a foundation or a corporation if we weren't really crisp and clear in our proposal about what we were going to do with the investment and what success looked like, what impact looks like. I'm going to take that same uh, style of work ethic with me into public office, because that's all I know. I've been doing this for 35 years, and I really think it's better government. So I'd like to introduce that style of accountability uh, to the city council. Some of the things that are on the docket that I'm aware of, and I acknowledge I may have, I'm almost certain I'm missing something. Yeah. Uh, preschool for all is something that is, uh, that is in the discussion. Uh, the transportation measure by Metro, five, I think it's $5 billion plus maybe $2 billion worth of matching money, if I have my numbers right. Uh, b- the Bull Run Filtration Project, which is not on the ballot but does cost real money. Uh, I don't remember, This is I'm embarrassed to admit, I don't remember if there's another housing measure or if we already passed the ones that are going to get passed. Uh, no, so now it's transportation. Yeah. Are there... Uh, which of those do you say, hold your horses, which of those do you say it's an important priority enough that I'm in? Yeah. I, first of all, I'd say the water filtration uh, bull run is probably my number one priority because to me, that is an uh, emergency, um, you know, to prepare for the big one, to prepare for the climate crisis. That one just uh, speaks to something that's very important to Portlanders. I mean, having clean access to clean water is survival. So that one is probably at the top of my list at the moment. I'm kind of in this survival place right now. And maybe it's because I've been running for office during COVID and I'm constantly, you know, looking at 
I need to remember to look at the green dot and not you, then it looks like I'm not there. But I think that equity, it has to be a part of, it's always been a part of how I do work when I operationalize. And what I do like about the transportation measure, which is probably why I'd put it too, is that Lynn Peterson and her team worked with communities of color at the foundation level. And I give them so much credit for that. And too often we, we bake the plan and then we bring everybody in afterwards. So I really appreciate that they've included them at the foundation level. And I think the only thing, and I love that they're looking at the arterials out in East Portland as somebody that spent most of my last 10 years in East Portland at 7 a.m. meetings at elementary schools and middle schools out there. I saw how unsafe those streets were. I know when I needed to slow down, so I didn't on a wet, rainy, dark January morning run into a mom and three kids who were trying to you know, just walk to school. So I'm really happy about that. Of course, I wish ODOT was going to spend all that money anyway. My, my, my one thought on that one is like, where, where's the money to make sure that the Burnside Bridge continues to be retrofitted properly? And could we add another one? Because um, again, when the big one comes, how are we going to get across the Lamb River? Um, how are we going to get access over to the people um, out past two of, east of 205? So I kind of wanted to see, and maybe I just haven't gotten to the details of it, but what, again, is the post-COVID uh, preparing for the big one plan? And I, I think that with all of them, that was my caution. It's like, you know, I really think that all these, were, these scenarios were drawn up pre-COVID, and there's this whole COVID and post-COVID reality. I don't want to go back to where we were. So I think it's a creative opportunity to put together some proposals and plans, which is what I'd call a ballot measure, that would be more innovative in terms of where we are today and where we're going. So I'm scrubbing them for that lens is what I'm trying to say. Well, let's stick with transportation then for a moment. The, uh, the mayor and a bunch of community leaders came out in favor of the I-5 expansion, and then they retracted that when Rakaia Adams told them so. That's uh, a mild exaggeration, but the dynamic with the Albina Vision Trust said, yeah, they'll work with us. Oh, we don't, we're not satisfied. Should there have been a push earlier against the I-5 expansion, which of course is connected to a mega, uh, mega bridge project across the Columbia River, should have the brakes been put on that earlier? Should resistance to that been put on earlier when there was more leverage and less momentum towards the project or as the process playing out as it should? Well, I had an opportunity when we when I first started campaigning the primary where we still were seeing one another live. Street Trust did a, a gathering, and I was I went hard on why I was against the widening, and for me it was uh, clear because uh, it affected the middle school Harriet Tubman. Um, it, it would increase carbon emissions. It would also chip away at the East Side Esplanade um, Park, which is one of our major accomplishments over the past decade plus, and. Also, I just couldn't understand why we were spending money on that when we had all of the investments that I wanted in arterials that the state runs in East County, um, which are in this measure, and also out of, on Columbia Boulevard, where we saw a big increase in, in deaths. So for me, where was the big picture reimagining on that? Like, what can't we think big? Can't we think about what it would be like to, and I know it's a big expense, don't, don't, don't get too shocked here, but what's the engineering possibility and dollar amount to, to dig and to go under the Lamb River and to have a tunnel and not have the Markham Bridge. You know, what would that look like? And so the climate crisis is real and COVID has changed adult behavior change when it comes to not driving as much because we've been forced to, forced to. But I know so many people that never want to go back to jumping in their cars and running around town. 
And so I think we need to take advantage of the fact that we're learning how to do more virtually and continue to have carbon emissions go down. It's a good segue. So one of the issues in this race might be experience. Loretta Smith has been elected to public office. You haven't. That isn't an issue of intelligence. It's not an issue of management capacity. You've managed a budget and you've managed a team. It's not an issue of understanding the city. You've been around doing stuff for a long time. Sometimes experience, though, can translate into knowing some moves, understanding some levers to pull to do a particular thing. Transportation is interesting. I find it deeply interesting because it's so critically important to the development of the city and the city doesn't get to make all the decisions, right? Decisions are made at the regional level, decisions are made at the national level, and a lot of decisions are made at ODOT at the state level. What are the levers you would pull? And I think I think your idea of burying the Markham Bridge and recapturing the second most valuable land in the city of Portland is shouldn't make nearly daunt people. It should give them enthusiasm, right? Recapturing the West Side waterfront is one of the things that made Portland worthy of New York Times articles decades later. What are the levers you would pull to then try to change our transportation priorities, which kind of like the police bureau have been a concern to small P progressive activists for decades, but we're still building highways like we did in the 1960s. Yeah. Yeah. When you're experienced like me and you've actually have 35 years of building programs, building teams in the independent nonprofit community impact space, uh, and you, you, with a little bit of money, you get a lot of impact. It's the perfect type of skill set you need when we're in a time and a place of multiple crises. We have to think out of the box. I think I would be so hampered by being a part of the status quo in this uh, local electorate for the last 20 years who basically have just uh, watched transportation become, hasn't been moving, literally. Um, we have seen uh, the homeless and housing situation get much, much worse. Um, there just hasn't been a lot of results. So the reason I was recruited is because people know that I know how to focus on complex local problems and, and then use complex local, and it takes complex local solutions as opposed to piffy little uh, sound bites and silver bullets that might be on the surface level, but never get us to real um, impact. And so I come from the real world where you have to get impact and you have to measure impact. And I'm looking forward to, um, it doesn't matter what the, what the sector is. To me, it's like what your results are as a leader. And I'm really proud of my record and I'm proud of my creative thinking. I'm proud of how I bring so many different sectors together. I'm not a divisive person. I mean, I think it's really good documentation. When you look back when I was on the school board, there were four, three votes for like four months and we were split pretty badly. I was voting with the two women of color to say if it's good for North Portland, why not the whole district? And at the end of it, the consultant who wanted to meet with all of us um, decided uh, after interviewing everybody, I was the one that everyone picked as the chair. And so I, I have an ability to bring people together and not take things too personally, because for me, it's always about what the residents need, what the students need, what the patients need. It's not about what Dan Ryan needs. So I hear, what you're, I hear what you're saying and appreciate very much the folks around creative thinking, bring, bringing people together, getting beyond sound bites. And with that in our mind, 
let's imagine and use this sort of as a scenario. We want to transform, let's say it's a collective we, at least you and me and some other people, we want to transform our transportation habits, our transportation practices, our transportation spending policies towards something that's a little more 21st century worthy, that's post-COVID relevant. What are the first few moves, as specific as you're comfortable with, what are the next few steps in reimagining that, that you'd have as a perch, you know, not head of ODOT, excuse me, not head of Portland Bureau of Transportation, but in the as a city councilor, maybe run the transportation, but maybe not. But what are those first few steps as specifically as you're willing to go? I'd always start with what success looks like. To me on transportation, especially as it overlaps with climate crisis, it's about fresh air. And so fresh air is like the number one goal. So let's con- constantly measure that and figure out if we're, if we're hitting those marks. Let me make sure I understand that. By measuring fresh air, you mean literally seeing how clean the air is and how transportation is impacting that? Carbon emissions are the number one uh, factor on why the air is dirty. Start with that. Um, The second one would be around safety. Since we've had safety concerns for all the right reasons, since we had an increase in pedestrian deaths that have gone really high over the last few years, um, I think pedestrian safety would be the number two thing that we'd measure. So for me, it's always starting with what are the two or three things that you want to measure success by, and then you line up all the different constituents, many of them who don't really like to get along, and see what they're gonna do to participate as a team member to reach those goals. And I found that when you come from that approach, you start to see a good government in action, as opposed to just taking a line item or one little silver bullet and acting like that must be the thing that will fix everything. It's deeper than that. And so start with bigger universal goals that everyone can get behind. So I just gave you two that I'm very clear about. That's helpful. And it, and it does. I have said for a long time that I thought a nonprofit head makes for a really interesting and potentially useful candidate and the and, and office holder. And I'll make that case. I'm sort of make part of your campaign case for you. And because there are a few things you got to be able to do, right? Well, you got to be able to raise money. That's a campaign thing, you know, more maybe than an office holder thing. Uh, and you, you've got to have had some experience leading staff. You've got to have some experience working with constituencies. And you have had to have some uh, experience managing soft power as distinct from being a military leader or as distinct from being a, a, a corporate CEO that so much of what you have to do to get something done is work with partners and persuade not only uh, risk them with court martial or promise them a bonus. You, you can't you can't spin your way out of your accountability. <laughs> your yeah. accountability is pretty blunt. Yeah. And, and and here and here's my counter to that. And I still believe everything I just said. Here's my counter. Good. I'm gonna remember that. <laughs> Part of the challenge is that the in, in the nonprofit sector largely, and in in particularly when it's healthy and when it's well run, et cetera. And you know, I've failed at that and succeeded at that at various different times, sometimes simultaneously. And in business also, organ- well, that's the messy sector, yeah. Sure. Organizations are uh, organized around objectives, around something they're trying to accomplish. Right. Political leadership is organized around power, around constituency, much less often organized. It's much harder to start out and say, here are our key objectives. We are going to have dashboards and lead towards them. And so much of it is 
shuttle diplomacy among groups who want to get something accomplished. How do you translate? How do you get the best version of objectives-based leadership and connect that to constituency-based power realities, right? Whether we're talking whether we're talking union partners, whether we're talking community groups, whether we're talking activists, whether we're talking entrenched bureaus, whether we're talking the police bureau, how do you do that? Or what's an example you've really liked of being able to turn constituency-based power into objectives-based leadership? I think you experienced that also in the nonprofit sector. I mean, I dealt with that at all hands raised table constantly. I'll never forget several conversations. Uh, one would be when we were looking at post-secondary and we had a camp that was only wanted to focus on higher ed. Then we had a camp that was like, the trades do not get enough attention. Um, uh, construction and manufacturing, earn while you learn right out of high school. So of course it's both. And so as a leader, you have to remind everybody, what's the, North, what's the, what's the goal here? The goal is that kids transitioning out of high school have a purposeful plan to move forward in life and, and have a shot at having a career by the time they're 25. Can you all agree on that? Yeah. Okay. The union trades people and the manufacturing people aren't on the same page, but wait, don't you guys both need employees because you're having trouble filling these jobs? Yes. Okay. Then get along on this issue. So you just constantly find where, as I say in politics, where the bedfellow moment is, where is the VIM diagram where they can get along? And I think when you're a tested, scrappy nonprofit leader, you've had to do that with not much purse. So I'm kind of excited to actually have the purse, if you will, of the public funds to finally spend it in a way that's actually efficient and not just uh, uh, cave in to the, to the status quo on how we think it's supposed to be. And you know what, Jefferson? I ran for this position for a couple reasons. One, because um, my brother, um, who who died on the streets of uh, homelessness. And two was this form of government that we've had in Portland um, since the earth was cooling and is basically stupid needs to be blown up. And so I'm basically getting at something right now. Bear with me. The fact is I see so many multiple crises and so do you, which is why it's like crazy to do a quick conversation about all of them right now. And it's, it's hire somebody that thrives when there's a crisis because they see it as an opportunity. That's been all my life. I have taken on nonprofit gigs where the winds were against us and then you bring people together and then you, you, and you get the results that, that the community deserves. I want to bring that same tone to City Hall because I haven't seen it tried out very well. And we have a moment in time. The reason Joanne endorsed me is because she likes the fact that I come from the community independent sector. She has that same background. My uh, friend Carmen Rubio, Commissioner-elect Rubio, also comes from the community sector. So you're going to have a chance to have the majority of the composite not be traditional politicians, but actually people that have had to be in this creative, messy, innovative space. And I can't think of a better time with all these multiple crises to have that type of a culture in leadership at City Hall. Let's talk about the potential reorganization, the restructuring of city government. First of all, which do you prefer, strong mayor or an unelected king? <laughs> wait, what, wait, what's the unelected king? I actually know. Yeah, un unelected king, the, the, uh, the city manager, the, uh, the, somebody that would be uh, hired to run the city. Which do you prefer, sort of a stronger mayor system or, uh, or a city manager system? I think it's a hybrid, actually. I think that what I've seen is that you always have um, a city manager type uh, person that is um, 
like a COO that helps um, do uh, a lot of the technical admin work. I know that I will on day one pretend, not, I'll act as if I'm gonna be on a team that's focused on these top four or five priorities. And I know that I can do my 5% of my job really well, which would be to, um, you know, I can smell a charlatan. So know who the, who the executives are in each bureau that I'm, that I'm asked to run. And, and then let them do most of the running. And I will spend 95% of my time on engaging with the community on the policy and practices that would improve the system of the top five priorities of the city. Um, I, I just wanna get us there as soon as possible where we aren't lost in the weeds of our little bureaus, but in fact, we and doing horse trading um, at budget times, but we start to really see uh, what these priorities are and that we're all on, as a team working on them. And so I just, I, I think we did start acting as if quickly, soon as possible. Um, after that, I'll let the public decide on what the formation looks like. I think we'd be hard pressed to increase the amount of money we spend on our elected officials and their staff. So I know when cities have increased the number of city council members, they've often had to decrease the size of the staff. So I think we probably have to be pretty much budget neutral no matter what. To me, the issue of part of the challenge I have with the way the question is raised, the way the discussion and debate has been conducted around changing the form of government is it's been, do you like the form of government that we have or does it have problems? And people say, well, it has problems. It has problems, of course. I am more interested in the conversation that's about trade-offs. And you've identified some of the key challenges, right? Like key challenges include how do you make sure five city councilors are in alignment, not only fighting over fiefdoms? How do you make sure one of the main ways that public opinion started shifting over it was, well, wait a minute, how can you actually diversify the city council if people are elected citywide? I actually think Nick Fish had an excellent point that there's starting already to be significant shift in that with respect to the whole city voting citywide. So... Those are sort of a couple of the main ones. Well, there, I don't forget the, uh, the open and accountable elections have really changed. That's yes. a factor to put in this conversation because, I mean, there were 19 people in our race and yes. I'd say over 10 ran really strong races because of that, uh, because of the public finance. Yes. And, and I will acknowledge, just to acknowledge my own bias, my, if you had you asked me five, six years ago, in fact, when I was working on that very thing, I would have said I would prioritize the money in the system more than whether districts are big or small in the system. If it I agree with you 100 percent. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, you know, the school board, you know, the school board uh, has a decent, I thought we had a good system. So I was zone four, which is north Portland and a little bit of northeast. Yeah. And I only ran against people in that zone. And yet I had to run district wide. So I had accountability to schools in Southeast and Southwest. I, um, I was always more fierce about what was happening at Roosevelt high school and chief Joseph and such, but I knew I had to be accountable to the whole, the whole uh, district. My point is I've lived in cities where it starts to balkanize the system and that just starts to create a whole nother um, quagmire. And so I think, as we look into the best practice that needs some kinks to work out, I know my opponents really struggled with it of late, the um, open and accountable system is really, really, really important uh, for our city. And we, and I will say that- I got to call him that zinger, by the way. It was a very subtle zinger, but it's a little zinger. Go ahead. The, uh, yeah. So what I'm saying is that as someone that's running with public funds at this moment, I'm already accountable to the city. I have to be accountable to those funds. And so- 
I know when I uh, made a couple mistakes, like one guy pressed one extra digit and he gave me 600 instead of 60. Yeah, I wish I would have returned it within seven days. Um, our accounting system was delayed and we were late. My brother in chemo did two 250 gifts because he was basically barely alive. And so, you know, I knew where all of the 900 came from and we got it back. Um, and you can't, re you can't send it off to another organization because that's called donor intent. And donor intent means if they're giving you money for your race, then you got to spend it on your race. So, um, you know, we have to make sure that we don't mess this up. So we got to work out a couple kinks. But right now, Portland has one of the best practices in the nation in terms of a public finance system. So let's make sure that we continue to nurture that. And I want to make sure one of my early priorities is to work with Commissioner Fritz as she's leaving and give her a lot of kudos for taking two on this one. And this one is vastly improved. And I, I want to make sure that we covenant and we make sure that it's something that we can be proud of in the city of Portland. Appreciate that. Also appreciate your use of the word balkanization. There are two concerns at least that I think should be raised in the discussions around our former government. One you already said, and that is that we will start to segregate, balkanize that uh, commissioners, counselors who are focused largely on their plot of land will start separating by geography as distinct from topic area. Now we might worry that somebody's a little too loyal to water. They're a little too loyal to transportation. And there might be a concern that someone's a little too loyal to the inner Southwest or a little too disloyal to the whole city at large, a little too focused on Irvington or, uh, or Cherry Park or you name it. The, uh, Did you experience a little bit of that in Salem? Of course. I mean, it's, it's, uh, and, 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 I, and it's not even, yeah, I guess I, I appreciate the humor, but of course, when it comes to transportation time, Right. People are like, OK, we all care about transportation. And you know what the transportation we care about is the frickin' interchange in our district. And that becomes the and, and that is not the best way, in my judgment, to build a transportation system. So you already offered one possible answer to address that. You might have more. But there's another one. Uh, well, actually, let me pause there. Any other ways that you would try to ameliorate that you try to soften the risk of people being too loyal to their own plot of land, their own district and not thinking about the good of the order? Well, I think just going back to like, we're elected to serve the entire city and prioritize what is most important to Portlanders during that period of time. And at every given time, when people and my opponent and other people talk about the budget, the budget, to me, it's like, no, what are the priorities, the priorities, the priorities, what are the strategic priorities, and then build your budget around it. It's like, that's the way you're supposed to build a budget. And so if you had a mayor and then a team of four, whatever number with them, you could really coalesce on that and not worry if your bureau is getting funded as more as these top priorities first Absolutely. and foremost need to be funded. And I bet we have too many bureaus once we start to look at that. And we might. And the concern that I want to flag that I just want to insert in the conversation, because I think it's been That's under how a large billion, multi-billion dollar organization would just run if it was functioning well. Right. But it connects to the. Or yes, and it connects to the thing I was saying before, where so often, I would say most of the time, a political operation, a government operation ends up being organized in, in terms of power, not only by virtue of its core objectives, but by its core constituencies. And so imagine if you're trying to get elected, you name your part of town, Hazelwood, whatever, that if you were running for city council and you could say, I'm going to bring home a community center. I'm going to get that park taken care of. And then all of a sudden, your priority isn't that bureau. Your priority is that pork. And, and so that's just the thing I want to flag and have be part of the conversation. Oh, I appreciate that. The, yeah. other, the other concern. When you've been raising money your entire life, I'm not really worried about my ability to get pork. 
No, I get it. And I think, and, and, and I'm not- A little nor, harder to raise money in the private sector than to get for it. Yeah. Nor, nor actually am I worried about most members of the city council who have served in the city council that I've ever voted for. I am curious about the kind of city council candidates and the kind of city council campaigns it engenders. What happens, you know, it, it, as if we have a system that's a little more like Chicago's former government, do we have a political dynamic that's a little more similar to the city of Chicago, to, ma- to just name one example? But here's the other. Because one way to deal with that is you could do it like the school, school board, where you represent a piece, and then, but you still run citywide. Another, another challenge that I see that I think has been under-acknowledged is if you like read Robert Putnam, right, the guy who wrote Bowling, wrote Bowling Alone and then wrote Better Together, this idea that the social fabric of our country has been frayed to too great a degree. His second book was Better Together, and it had a chapter on Portland. It said, you know what this town does best? We lead the league in protests. We lead the league in people testifying before city council. We are connected to the town. And I would argue one of the reasons we're connected to the town is for decades, every city councilor has had power. And every time you meet with a city councilor, you know you're not just meeting with a vote you're lobbying. You're meeting with somebody who can actually make things happen, who can go from policy, as you said, to practice, because they can actually see something through. What are the ways, and if we don't have an answer yet, that's fine, but what are the ways that we preserve or even amplify that level of civic engagement in a context where more power is being wielded by an unelected bureaucrat? By an elected bureaucrat? Unelected. By a bureaucrat, by a, by a city manager. If a city manager is doing most of the stuff, how do you maintain or amplify civic engagement? Yeah, I mean, well, it's always, you know, you, you don't go out to the public with a blank slate. You go out with some uh, bumpers on what success looks like, but you always need to engage them on the ground floor, those that are concerned and those that are passionate, those that want to be helpers to, 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 to build that out. And again, I always start with what does success look like? What are the key things that we measure to get us to success? And so whatever the issue is, you lead that kind of a process. And then, you know, you're still going to need, if it's five, you need three votes. If it's seven, you need four votes. And so I think that you would share the response. That's a key word, share the responsibility. So shared leadership, shared sacrifice is what's happening right now. Shared responsibility and I think that Portlanders can shine with those values. And I'm worried over the last few years, we've gotten away from that. We've become almost as divisive um, as, as some of the other cities in the country. And I, I think that that has been, um, that's been disappointing. I feel as though because of these multiple crises, we are gonna have to come together like never before. And every time the city's been in a funk and has had to get to a new level, I'm old enough to remember what it was like in the 70s going into the early 80s. It was a real exciting time. And what you noticed is that it was all the different sectors were on board to make Portland the city that it deserved to be. we got to get back to that place. And we're, we're really in a mess right now. And so I can't think of a better time where we can stop shaming all the different sectors, but play to the strengths of the different sectors and, and, and build, and build uh, plans for each of our key priorities. And so as a city council member, I'm on that team and I will just play to my strengths, which is basically what I'm talking to you about right at this moment. And I think that that alone is a skill set that's been missing at city council for some time. I think my predecessor, um, Nick Fish, was the best at it. And it's why so many people reached out and and asked me to run because I thought I had similar skill sets. Do you worry at all or is it even a valid worry? 
that if we move to a city manager system, that members of the community who have their primary leverage being the house party they hold or the Facebook post they give or the contribution they make uh, or the vote they cast for a city councilor, not for an unelected city manager. Do you worry that the community members will have less power over their government? I don't because you'd have a, you'd have to build, it's a great question. You'd have to build an accountability system so that the um, evaluation of that city manager is very transparent. And that uh, I think when I was on the school board, we instituted a, a much more transparent evaluation system of the superintendent at the time. It's kind of similar to that, where uh, you had to play the role as a community member to make sure that others had an opinion on how that person was doing. And so we just have to be a part of the team that is uh, supervising that one person. When we were talking about the economy. Trust me, if they don't like how that person's doing, you're all, you're all to blame. No, I appreciate that. And I think it is. And I would put a little plug because I, you know, sort of hear the political momentum for changing the former government. And I do think that it's that acknowledging the things that we will off in the trade, amplifying those in the system that we do, the geographic balkanization risk and the uh, making sure people still have power risk, that we build systems to not lose those things. But we can move on. From my power, power should always be shared. So for me, I won't have any power unless it's shared with the community that is excited about the creativity and the innovation that I'm talking about going forward. I would do that with other communities. We were talking about the economy and we were talking about the spending measures that you have some concern about in November because you think there's going to be a contraction. And the me and every economist that is writing about this. Yeah. And 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 I agree with you. And I think anybody who doesn't agree is not paying attention to me. <laughs> Uh, the, and you said at the top of your list was bull run filtration, not on the ballot, but important. I don't think on the ballot, uh, transportation you think is second, but you think it should be in the context of transforming our transformation, our transportation, and not only, you know, trying to replicate pre COVID world. One you didn't mention was preschool for all. Where are you? Is that in your bucket of, Hey, that needs to wait. I actually looked at the details. I know that the County is moving that one forward and I'm not running for the County commission seat. Clearly I'm a, I was, I've been a big advocate for early childhood um, from the beginning. Um, I, uh, when I ran for the school board, I remember it was actually mind-blowing then, but I said we should have uh, all-day kindergarten. We didn't have it just in, that was in 2005. Can you believe it? And so that, was, that happened during my tenure at PPS. I keep forgetting to talk about that. Anyway, um, so I, I, I know that the first uh, you know, prenatal to five years are probably the most influential um, in a kid's life. I think that too often though, it's been in the image and likeness of what your average dominant culture person thinks early childhood should look like. So what I wanna see in the measure is how we really lean into our growing um, new arrival communities, especially our Latinx communities, our indigenous communities, African-American, um, and the one that I think often gets overlooked, which is uh, Filipino, because they're often they're, they're our deprivation and uh, the marginalization that occurs within that Asian population is very different than the rest of the Asian population. My point is I'll always have an equity lens on anything that I look at. And so I haven't looked at the details of it, but I trust that, uh, isn't it uh, Jessica Vega Peterson's the leader of it? Okay, so I trust that she probably has all of that uh, wired out, yeah. In the county, and then there's also been a citizen-led, a, a people-led initiative. Oh, that's right. There was another one. Imagine yeah. that, yeah. 
And it's and we'll at least be interacting with those as voters. Right. We'll at least be casting a vote. And so it sounds like I don't put words in your mouth. But what I'm hearing is you do have some nervousness around stuff on the ballot in November. But in terms of those big initiatives, you'd still vote for them. You'd still be in favor of them. Are there any any big spending measures that you'd say that you're already sure of, even without looking? What I'm saying is that success might not look like putting them all on the ballot this fall. Success might look like this. It might look like prioritizing one or two of them that are actually part of the survival to get through the economic devastation of the, you know, Great Depression meets, uh, you know, my, I know I sound alarmist, like the, the Spanish flu of 1919. Um, and, and then maybe we'll start to get our sea legs back in 21, 22. Yeah. My point is these were all written before all of this. No question. This is the real stuff. I like scenario planning and I'm a kind of a realist and a creative person at the same time. But what are our three scenarios for what our community will look like post COVID? You know, we don't know (laughs) right now. I have a neighbor down the street that has a preschool operation. It's a wonderful preschool operation. He doesn't know he's going to pay his mortgage next month. Well, maybe we don't even know if we're going to be able to have kids in his, in in his preschool program. Yeah. Well, well, if he gets the city money or the county money, then he'd have a chance. Here's the question. But but, 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 but it's just a building. It's like right now, like, yeah. But I mean, I think you're onto something. I think you flagged, I think you flagged a key issue, right? That plans were made in a different time. And I think it's really interesting to then how do we apply that now? That's all I'm trying to have a conversation about is can we all take a time out and realize that um, we're a little delusional if we're not, if we're not like realizing that the planning and scenario planning today is a heck of a lot different than it was when you were designing these back in the fall. And so you're not sure which you would prioritize. You just sort of want to raise the uh, the mild alarm to say, hey, let's prioritize together. As elected official, that's what I would be saying right yeah. now. And so I, I stood with like, you know, with the parks. I think parks are wildly essential. I think during this crisis, we can actually elevate them on how essential they are. I also think they're going to be majorly essential after the big one. That's going to be a place that people could gather. It's a place they already, we already deliver food for kids in the summer. So it's like, how can we look at the parks differently than just a place where people recreate, but actually as like a outdoor community center that we'll have to go to in times of crisis. And so, and then what's the new business plan? You know, I don't want to keep putting band-aids on it. What does that long-term business plan look like? And how can we play to one of our number one strength, strengths in the city, which I always say our parks is a big part of it. It's that and the arts and culture. Those are like the things that bring us joy in Portland. And we're going to need them as we basically rebrand the city going forward. And we need to do some rebranding. Should we get rid of our public golf courses and instead use them for either parks or maybe more likely housing? Uh, yeah, I'm, well, I, you know, here I, I'm not a golfer, so it's pretty easy. I think at the, um, at the, uh, Parks debate, as it was called, they asked me, "What's it like to, you know, be in Forest Park when a, you know, when a bike goes by?" And I'm like, "Well, it's very unpleasant. And um, why can't we think of, you know, using the golf courses as maybe, maybe that's where we do one of those, uh, you know, mountain bike courses? I don't know. But I'm just trying to say that we have to reimagine those spaces. I know when I was on the school board, we had old properties like Washington uh, High School." And it took forever for us to repurpose it. But now it's Revolution Hall and, you know, New Seasons headquarters are there. And so, you know, we have these properties and at time of crisis, we've got to get our heads out and we have to, we have to get more creative and think about how we can repurpose them. 
I love repurposing. I love rebuilding. I love rethinking. I'm really uh, get bored with us being stuck in the same place. And really, when you, if we really have an equity lens on everything, I mean, come on, how many, how many people are really utilizing those golf courses right now? What's the biggest thing you've learned on the campaign trail? And maybe it's not a trail at this point. Maybe it's just a series of screens. That someone told me when you first started running, I'll, tr- I'll keep this more positive. You, you'll be shocked and surprised of who you meet that you feel like you've known forever in a short period of time because you just totally connect and they become one of your best helpers. And even in spite of me doing this Zoom thing with so many people, I have like a list of 10 people that are now in that category and I've never even met them live. It's so funny, right? And so when someone told me that, I thought, oh, that's not gonna work now that we're doing this uh, campaign with uh, physical distancing. And uh, anyway, that's been the best, um, that's been the good news. And the other good news is, you know, I've been working in the city for, I, I came home to die in 1995. And uh, then I lucked out and I really do mean that. I had to do a lot of therapy all with the people that, that passed away right before me. Like there was the guilt survival, the guilt survival thing. Yeah. Um, and so I'm on borrowed time and I'm just so excited to be alive and well 25 years later. And then I'm like on the brink of becoming a city council member, you know, I'm like a, you know, I'm becoming an elder queer with, with HIV that loves to think out of the box. And I just think bringing someone like my skill sets with my life experience to, to just energize a city hall with some new life. And I, I just think that we need to give people a shot that have a really strong community experience uh, to help lead this city at this time. So, you know, I just love my city and I just am ready to, you know, do one more gig and why not clean up um, the mess and uh, from messes is when you have the opportunity. So what's other than fundraising and for you, you have a fundraising background, so it might not even be that, but other than fundraising, what has been the most annoying part of the campaign? Oh yeah. Especially with, uh, I have to say because of the open and accountable elections, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, like I have 700 more donors to my campaign than my opponent. So to me, it's a lot of hustle and it allows you to connect with so many people. So those five and 10 and $25 donors become a part of your uh, community that you learn from and that, that educate me. And so I just, I just can't say enough good about it. So, so what's your question again? <laughs> what the annoying, most annoying thing? Yeah. What's been on the campaign trail, the hardest thing to get through, the thing that's most challenged you? Uh... You can name a media entity. You can name a you could name a human being. You could name having to wake up or go to bed at a certain time. Whatever you want. I think the strain that it places on um, your interpersonal relationships. I I became a fiance after the primary, and I would say it's because we figured if if the two of us if if they said to me that we are doing better now than before we were holed up together and you turned this hold up situation into this pan- panic centralized operation for a citywide campaign. That all said, it's still hard on relationships because I feel really, I feel really selfish. Like I can't always turn it off. And I really thank goodness for like watching a few television shows late at night. Um, I only fall in love with people that have really good senses of humor. That's like a requirement. And, you know, thank God for the laughter late at night um, when this is all done. But sometimes it takes me a while to unwind 
and I allow, you know, I'm a sensitive guy, I'll admit it. Um, and I'll let things like get into my heart and, and not my head too often. I got to ask before I ask sort of your kind of final pitch, has Loretta Smith gotten a bad rap? I recognize that critiques of your counterpart in the race potentially benefit you, but there also might be some responsibility as a white ally to call that out. Does she get treated fairly by the media and by white Portland? I am a candidate running for office as a white ally during BLM. And this has been fascinating. I have become more exposed to Portland's challenges with white fragility and uh, how many people haven't worked on their white guilt. I, I, I admit I work on it daily. It's a messy daily journey. And it helps when you have fierce uh, lovers in your life that have been of color. Uh, it's the only way you can survive the relationship is to have those dialogues. So I just need to focus on myself. This has been the most um, energizing, challenging, uh, poignant, I'm gonna be able to write a good book no matter what, about what it's like to run um, for office during the summer. And uh, I, I will just say that. I'm gonna keep it positive. That's how I, that's how I try to roll. Um, and I think that's what Portland needs. We need bridge builders right now. You know, I, I'll just say I was disappointed that the one, uh, she has one endorsement from the media, the scanner, and you know, they didn't even, they didn't even interview me. And so I think it's important that we continue to have access um, to all of the, and, and include each everyone running for office and all the different media outlets that are doing endorsements. So you think she's being treated fairly or you don't want to opine on it? I think that she says enough about what she's experiencing and I'll let her continue to talk about that. I'm going to stay focused on the fact that we have uh, 1,700 people who have given to this campaign. We uh, weren't even supposed to be in the runoff, if you will. I mean, a lot of people didn't give, the Oregonian didn't even interview me in the primary. Um, I think that uh, I'm just excited to stay focused on winning this thing because I know I'm representing voices and constituents that have not felt connected to the political system for a long time. Everyone just says to me the same thing. You're so different than most people that run for office. And I say, well, I don't know how to be anything but who I am. I'm like 58 and I've never been um, excited about being a politician, but I'm very excited about um, being a leader for the city of Portland. I'm excited about giving all I can to my hometown. And so that's why I'm right here, right at this moment on the verge of becoming um, the honor of filling Nick Fish's shoes for the last two and a half years of his term. What are the best shows you're watching late at night? Um, I always forget. Good, Good Place. The Good Place. Yeah, I've watched it a few times. It's about it's sort of about kind of heaven. I ha yeah, I love it. And then I I rewatched uh, Parks and Rec. I just for I I I'm really enjoying that. And maybe my memory's not great, so it feels like I'm watching all of them for the first time. Is there a so, character you really And I think it's to? preparing me for running for being on city council. It's a how-to. I think it's a how-to to run a city bureau. Uh, is there a character you relate to most? And if it's Leslie, no. The third would be Watchmen. That I that that oh. one was kind of too close to home at times. That was deep. All right, you're, you wanted me to talk about which character I what fill the most life? Yeah, on on uh, Community. Is there excuse me, not Community Parks and Rec? Is there? Is it Leslie Nope, or is there somebody else you relate most closely to? I think I'm a cross between, I have to be really honest right now, I'm a cross between 
I'm a cross between Leslie, Nope, and probably, um, oh God, what's his name? The guy that looks way too good for his age. Um, Rob Lowe? Oh, Rob Lowe, yeah. yeah <laughs> he looked too good for his age at all ages. I know, that, right? That's, that's Rob Lowe's job, is just to look better than everyone else at whatever age anyone else is. <laughs> but that's I say I'm, I'm an optimist like both of them, and a little, um, um, I'm very passionate like Leslie Nope for sure. And I could take a punch really well like her. I like how she just gets right back up. <laughs> but I got to say, I love Donna and Ron. They're the pe I would marry Donna and Ron. Like those are the two, because they're just so crazy and fun. And to wrap up. Let's talk about Parks and Rec for another half hour. It'd be fantastic. Yeah. As we wrap up, what are you most excited about as you move from the campaign stage to office? Camp the campaign's ending soon, right? This is an August election, yeah. oddly timed. What are you most excited about as you envision serving? Well, for, I just love learning, first of all. So I just can't wait to uh, be a sponge with um, the people I'm going to work with. And especially, um, you know, with, a, with Commissioner Fritz leaving, I think it'll be a great opportunity to, I find when people are leaving, they're even more open to sharing their knowledge. So I want to really dive in to what she experienced and uh, really just figuring out, um, I'm a team player. And so I like to figure out what, what gap that I can fill in and, um, I think that's really important. We have to spread the field. All right, I'm a, I'm a total sports person. So it's like, how do you spread the field? You know, the lanes of basketball. And you see it with soccer, right? Where all the little kids, when they first start playing soccer, they're all around the ball. They'll bunch up around the ball. You got to spread the court. You got to figure out how to spread it and get things done. Um, and I just love developing new relationships um, because relationships move at the speed of trust. And the reason I, I'm in this thing is because over the years, in spite of being an outsider, and not being a political insider, and therefore a lot of people not giving me a shot, I built so many relationships in the city, and I'm excited to bring those relationships to City Hall, because I know a lot of people that get you know what done in this town that have felt completely excluded from City Hall for a while. And so stop the smugness, Portland. We don't know everything, like get over it, and let's like figure out how to be humble and come together and, and build forward. Dan Ryan, candidate for city council. Thank you so much for taking the time, man. You're really welcome. It's good to see you. Likewise. Likewise. Stay healthy. Cheers. I will. You too. Okay. Bye-bye.